terms. This is the place where we learn together what it takes to change the world on our own terms and in our own special way. Today, I have a new friend with me, Harriet Stein, who is an expert and a speaker and a passionate teacher of mine. I can't wait for, I cannot wait for you to hear from her on her own terms about her homegrown solutions for a patchwork world. Welcome, Harriet. I'm so glad you're with me today. And I will be interjecting just a little bit because as I was listening again to your story after our conversation, I kept finding personal connections to the things that you were sharing that I'd have just enough time to share some of it with our listeners today. So if you don't mind, in between some of your recorded interview, I am going to also just share a little bit of commentary of my own. Thank you, Harriet, for agreeing to tell your homegrown solutions for a patchwork world. And I'm going to start, as always, with my first question, which is tell us about homegrown you. Where were you grown? Who are your people? What do you want us to know about your background? Harriet? I was actually grown initially in beautiful New Jersey and then grew up here in Pennsylvania. There's an old saying that says, If you're born with sand in your shoes, it never comes out. So I always think that that is part of who I am. I am that person who loves water and loves the beach. And I think that was my very first, as a person who loves teaching mindfulness, uh, I think that was my very first mindfulness experience. Having my grandmother, I used to say that this is the first game any child who lives by the ocean is taught and they take you to the water and you run away from the water and you go to the water and you run away from the water. (laughs) Take me down to the Atlantic ocean, but it was really paying attention. I have that memory with my grandmother taking the water, showing me how to put it on my hand and how to take the cold water and rub it on each one of my arms and on my face and It's just a wonderful way that I learned the importance of paying attention. One of the reasons I do what I do is because my mother actually worked really hard at work. And then out of the blue, when she was 58 years old, she got uh, very sick. And it was primarily due to work stress. And being a nurse, that was very difficult, but I couldn't in any way help her. It's easy sometimes to blame the victim. And I think my mom worked so hard to try to be healthy and didn't smoke and rarely drank and exercised and was at her ideal weight. All these pressures that women put on themselves to try to be these perfect people, right? You know what that's like. And the work stress really got to her. I remember that when she was in the hospital dying, I said, what what are you thinking about? What is, because I could see how upset she was. And she said to me, oh, I hadn't had a sick day in like over, you know, eight or 10 years. And now I had to have a sick day. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Here, even in the hospital, she was thinking about work. And I remember writing a little note and putting it in her hospital room 
to get her to focus on herself and self-care. And I said, uh, perfect attendance is being present for life, not work. So I, I was like, don't be thinking about work, you know, try to get better. And unfortunately she didn't, she passed at 58 years old. And I think being a nurse, I think it's one of the reasons why I'm very passionate about teaching people how to decrease their stress. I can see where you get your passion, Harriet. And like you, my mother was a nurse. And like your mother, she passed away far too young from breast cancer that does have stress-related implications. And like both you and your mother, my mom was a very, very hard worker who often did not put herself first. Because I so told the story about my mother and I rarely share it, right? I, I told it because it is hardwired in me. So there I was working really, really hard. I was teaching actually mindfulness on the side at Johnson & Johnson for almost a decade when I was working there. I worked there almost 15 years. And what was so amazing is that I remember in my 50s getting diagnosed with mono. And my doctor said to me, I didn't think anybody this old could get mono. And I remember somehow thinking to myself that this was a compliment, that, that I had gotten a disease that people that are in their teens and 20s get, and that I got it. But in all seriousness, it, it's just so important that I loved my job so much that I wasn't taking care of myself. So sometimes that work stress can be because of difficult work situation, whether it's a difficult with colleagues or a manager, but sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes it could be that you love your job, but you don't set the correct boundaries and you're working long hours and you're working on the weekend. And that also impacts your body if you are not taking care of yourself. And it happened to me. It was hardwired in me to put work first and I suffered because of it. In uh, April of 2000, I attended a one-day program with a gentleman by the name of John Kabat-Zinn, and he's a brilliant teacher. He created the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program, and just the one-day workshop with him, it just changed my life forever, and it was all about paying attention. It was the first time I ever was taught formal meditation. We did the sitting practice and eating meditation and walking meditation. It was just, it was a lot. It was a really long, intense day. And it just made me realize that, you know, sometimes just small little tweaks that we can do in our day make a really big impact. And I went back to J&J &J and I said, I would love to be able to teach a little something over lunchtime to my colleagues because I saw all my friends, my family, my colleagues, everybody nowadays is dealing with so much stress. And thankfully, my manager said, it's okay. We'll, uh, we'll just keep it quiet. And we did it there. We had a, a half hour class at lunchtime once a week, and it went almost a decade. And I realized by doing that, I mean, then people would be like, can you do a one hour lunch and learn? And it just grew and grew and grew. And, you know, the program that I ended up going and learning how to teach is eight weeks long. 
and two and a half hours a week. And I have never taught it once because people would say to me, teach it to me now. That's what changed it forever. They would be like, okay, can you teach it to me now? And I was like, well, it's eight weeks long. And they're like, yeah, just right now. Just like now. And, and I did that. I actually did that. I taught it to one of my colleagues at J&J, not knowing she had a, a really bad fear of flying. And she took off the next day and she texted me from the tarmac at LAX and said, I'm here. I feel fantastic. And I had no idea what she was talking about. And when she got back, she explained to me it was the first time ever that she flew and didn't have a problem because she noticed her thinking that when she was, when you know how you're flying sometimes at 30,000 feet, there's always that big bang and you feel like you hit a pothole and you're wondering how could there be a pothole at 30,000 feet, right? So when, it, when there would be a funny noise or some turbulence, she checked in with her thoughts, which all, that's all mindfulness is. It's just paying attention to our thoughts. She noticed she was thinking in the past a past we can never change, or thinking about the future, which hasn't even happened. And then she realized she was fine right there in the present moment. And she just kept bringing herself back again and again, reading her book, and she arrived without any problem. That's a really powerful example, Harriet. And I don't think I shared with you while we were talking a personal story related to flying. A lot of people don't know this, but my dear beloved father-in-law actually died in a plane crash outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1994. And he was a beloved man and a leader in our community, actually the founding dean of the veterinary school at Virginia Tech, the Virginia, Maryland Regional College of Veterinary Medicine. And someone, of course, as his family that we loved dearly, it was quite a shock when the plane went down. I can't remember how many passengers, but it was a full passenger liner. And so we lost my father-in-law in a plane crash. And I had not flown a lot before that time, but like your friend, Harriet, I developed a severe fear of flying. And I thought that it was going to completely disable me. But the first time I got on an airplane after my father-in-law's passing, I, of course, had memories, grief kind of memories come up for me during that flight. But I remember very clearly because I was flying down to New Orleans to meet my husband, who was there for a conference, and I was going just to join him for fun. And it was the first time in my life I ever flew alone. And there was some turbulence, like you described. And we were actually circling over the Charlotte airport and after a while had to make a landing in Greenville, South Carolina, unplanned because of the turbulence that was going on. But what I remember very clearly was shaking very hard sitting in my seat. And there was this very kind woman who was sitting beside me who was picking up on my anxiety and my fear. And I remember that she looked over at me and looked in my eyes. She said, honey, do you like boats? And I said, yeah, I like boats. And she said, well, you need to think of flying as just like riding in a boat. The air is just like the water. And when you're feeling those bumps, it's just like the ocean waves. And when Harriet today is talking about her beach 
metaphor of sticking her toes in the water and also about her friend's airplane story. It just makes me think of this story, both about my dear beloved father-in-law and how sad we were when we lost him, but my ensuing fear of flying that happened after that. And this woman who used an ocean metaphor to help me get over my fear. Now, since then, I've practiced some meditation and mindfulness techniques of my own, so I can attest to the fact that Harriet is right, is when we stay in the moment in those situations and realize we can't control what's behind us or what's in front of us, but only this present moment in which I'm just fine. Thank you for that story, Harriet, and it just reminded me of one of my own. So I did want to ask at this point, if you would, Harriet, give us any kind of a little tip about something that we could try to help us experience this mindfulness practice that you're talking about. So I'd ask you if you could do a little magic for us right here while we are together and give us an experience with mindfulness that it won't take you too long to implement with us. I always say it's the magic of the practice uh, that's been around for thousands of years. So if you're listening to this in the car, you cannot do meditation in the car. So pull over to the side. But if you are, if you're anywhere sitting, sitting in a car and you're not driving, or if you're, you know, taking a walk right now, I invite you to just notice what it feels like to be in your body. You know, noticing the weight of your body. If you're sitting on a chair or your sofa Maybe you're sitting in your kitchen, wherever you are listening to this. Maybe you're sitting outside and just notice what's around you. So frequently, we don't even notice what's around us. And if it feels comfortable for you, you can even put a hand on your lower abdomen and just notice what it feels like to be inhaling and exhaling, just noticing your breathing not wanting it to be any different than how you find it. It's that simple. Just sitting and just watching your breathing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because my company is called Big Toe in the Water, right? So I have people from every type of organization you could think of or people reach out to me and, and are interested in decreasing their stress. As a person who's been a nurse now for over 30 years, I'm used to dealing with people from all over, right? And I grew up here in Philadelphia and it was very funny because I grew up in one area and ended up working in a different area. And when I went back to my old neighborhood, my old neighborhood said to me, what are those people like over there? (laughs) And I thought, you know, because Philadelphia is very much a melting pot. And it was interesting because even in the community where I was working, there was a top of the hill people and there were bottom of the hill people. I'm literally amazed. I mean, so you have to realize mindfulness is this practice of moment to moment awareness with non-judgment, non-judgment. So I find it amazing that no matter the group I work with, I'm very aware when I start judging, right? So when a company reached out to me and said, could I do a program for them? It was a manufacturing company and I did the program and it went incredibly well. But I thought initially, you know, you would have this bias that people would think, well, manufacturing, because you have this image of what manufacturing looks like. 
And it wasn't anything at all like that. I've worked with so many different types of people. When I work with men, I was just telling somebody this morning that when I work with men, a lot of times they talk about how mindfulness is used very effectively and has been for a while in the military. I've done programs on military bases. Men and women on military bases are not really that much different than men and women working in hospitals or men and women working in law firms. Wherever you're going to have men and women, like Chris Rock says, when he does his comedy, uh, he did a, a comedy routine in New York City, in South Africa, and in England. And they said, did you have to change your routine a lot? And he said, no. Anywhere there are men and women, they're going to be fighting about the same things that men and women fight about. <laughs> so anywhere you have human beings, mothers are mothers or mothers, parents, single people, younger people dealing with older people, older people dealing with younger people. I mean, all of those things, wherever you go, it's going to be a very similar type of situation I found. I can relate to any of them. <laughs> so you've mentioned this idea of non-judgment and sometimes I find that difficult. I'm you mentioned occasionally you become aware that you're being judgmental or you're feeling judgment within yourself. And I know what I know of you is that you really do practice this non-judgment as a value, as a practice. And sometimes it's a little difficult for some of us. So I wonder if you could give us any strategies for helping us bring ourselves back to non-judgment or get that under control in the moment if we're having a little difficulty. So because I teach non-judgment, I'm very aware when I'm judging. So I was walking down the street because I like to take walks early in the morning. And I saw this beautiful stroller sitting in the middle of the street. And so I laughed because immediately I realized what had happened, right? Somebody's rushing to get their kids in the car. They're late. They have to get them to daycare. Fortunately, they threw the child in the car and left the really expensive, beautiful stroller in the middle of the street. But I did go around and check to make sure that they did get the baby in the car and that it wasn't just a stroller. But, you know, the thing is that that judgment, because initially I think people would see that and be like, oh, you know, that person was in a rush or, you know, they weren't paying attention. And I was like, no, no. When I notice that I'm judging, I first ask myself, would I feel differently if I knew that that person was up all night, maybe with a sick child, and maybe that's why they were late in the morning and then forgot to put the stroller in their car, or they were doing caregiving for maybe an elderly parent and then had to rush their child to daycare. Every single person, us as well, and every single one of your listeners, everyone is dealing with something. So that's how I try to use this practice of non-judgment for myself. And I always encourage everybody else to see if they can bring and really expand their awareness to, to just maybe consider that. This is very much a practice of compassion. 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 As you were describing it, I was thinking empathy, but I think that compassion is really empathy in action, right? At least I've heard someone say that before. 
as we're thinking about what could be going on with another person, it reminds me of my mother, who I told you was a nurse, but she used to say to me when somebody was grumpy in the checkout line at the grocery store, that they probably had a fight with their wife this morning. I remember that example from very early on, her teaching me that. And actually, I had an incident at the grocery store just last week when I was actually trying to find some COVID-19 tests because my grandchildren, a couple of them tested positive on the at-home test and had to be out of school before they would be allowed to come back. They had to have a negative test. And I went to the grocery store pharmacy And when I was in there, I thought I was really picking up on this vibe of everybody was bothered by all the clientele. And even in the pharmacy, I waited through the line to get up to the cash register because I couldn't find any tests anywhere, but online it said they had them. And I went up to the line and this lady asked the pharmacist behind the counter, are there any COVID-19 tests? And he kind of went like that. I said, I don't understand what that means. And he went like that that again. And so I went out on the other side of the window where he seemed possibly to be indicating and there was an empty box there. And I held it up and I said, oh, COVID tests. And he was like, like this. And so he rolled his eyes at me and went back on the shelf and got down a new box of COVID-19 tests and didn't open the carton. He just handed me the whole carton. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, I think I can buy the whole carton. There are 12 in there. I'll probably need those eventually. So I'll just buy the carton. And I got up to the cash register and realized there was no barcode on there. And that was going to be a lot of trouble for the people. So I went to the self-checkout and couldn't figure out how to check it out. And eventually I just opened the carton and checked them out one by one by one. But I was at first a little miffed thinking, These people didn't seem to care anything at all about customer service (laughs) or the fact that I was looking for something and that it was their job to assist us. And I remember my mother's voice inside my head saying, maybe they had a fight with their wife this morning. And then I also was thinking about, oh my, you know, people are so understaffed and overworked right now that these people were just stressed. And so once I decided to be in my moment and recognize that I could actually have the opportunity to bring a little light to the situation by just taking care of myself, being mindful of how I was responding and not adding anything to the angst or negative energy that seemed to be permeating through this grocery store (laughs) that perhaps I could be doing my part. I came away from the experience actually feeling kind of good about myself because I made a deliberate decision not to contribute to the unhappiness happening in that building. So thank you for that reminder that I actually gathered myself and reduced, if if I did not eliminate my judgment, I certainly reduced it. And in the meantime, made myself a happier person and hopefully didn't make any of those people uh, less happy than they already seem to be, so. This is why I left J&J to focus 100% on teaching this because I love that I don't need eight weeks to teach a program. The fact that my friend was able to say to me, teach it to me now, it opened up literally the last 15 years. It changed my life in that one moment. 
when she said, teach it to me now, because I realized that if I only have 10 minutes with somebody, if I can teach them to just to begin noticing their thoughts, because I always say, where is your attention best served in a past, you know, noticing regrets that we can never change or worrying about a future that has yet to unfold and has worrying ever helped us? It hasn't helped me. I teach this practice because of one word, one word, disease, dis-ease. Mindfulness promotes ease so that if I can quickly teach somebody to easily decrease their stress, they're going to increase their productivity, their performance. Notice I never mentioned happy. Okay. I feel like I don't want to be known as the anti-happy person because I like to think of myself as a person who has happiness in their life, but I don't want people to think that they have to be anything because one of the attitudes we cultivate with this practice is non-striving and realizing that if right now you're frustrated, okay, and then maybe a few minutes from now, you'll be happy. If you spill water on important papers, you're not going to be happy. So mindfulness is very much about being authentic. So feeling your feelings in the moment and not holding on to them. I always say that when we get angry, it's as if we're holding a hot coal with the intent of throwing it. Who is getting burned? So yeah, so we have to know when to let go, right? Anger is a great emotion. It's very valid, but we don't want to be holding on to these things for too long. I think it goes back to the why I called my company, much to the confusion of my lawyer, big toe in the water. Because yeah. I went up to this, my first mindfulness teacher, which was right, John Kabat-Zinn. He's known around the world. And I went up to him and I said, I want to do this. I want to teach this practice to people all over in organizations, whatever. And I was looking for a lead, right? I wanted him to say, call my friend somewhere. And instead, he gave me something so much more valuable. He said, if you want to change your life in any way, he goes, you don't have to move. He said, you don't have to quit your job. He said, just do one little thing. He said, just put your big toe in the water and try one little thing. And I walked away and I had no idea what he was talking about. And then I went to work and asked my boss at J&J if I could just try, you know, just a little 30 minute program. And that ended up me teaching over 5,000 people there in almost a decade. And it's why I called my company Big Toe in the Water. So if people are making or wanting to make any changes in their life, and I'm sure your listeners are, whether they are big or small, it starts with one little tiny, teeny, tiny bite-sized step, one little one. And I so strongly encourage them to just put their big toe in the water and then just notice the endless ripples. My website is bigtoeinthewater.com. It's easy to email me, which is harriet at bigtoeinthewater.com. 
I always feel now with the internet, there's so much information out there about me that I just tell people to call before they stop over my house. I'm just very, very grateful to have had this opportunity, really to be able to have this conversation with you and your listeners because of the work you're doing. You're empowering these people to really go and and just dream big and follow their heart. And life is so short. John Kabat-Zinn always says that if you're alive, there's more right with you than wrong with you. So thank you for all that you're doing to get people to understand that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Harriet. I have absolutely no doubt that the work you are doing is creating many, many ripples throughout the world by helping us all find our moments and live in our moments, the moments of life. I love so many things about your powerful story, but it brings me just delight to hear the way that you started by going to the beach and dipping your little toes in the water as a child in your first moments of mindfulness and how you have continued that theme throughout your life by dipping your big toes in the water. I can't wait for people to hang out today if you're with us live so that you can talk with Harriet about the ways that you are also trying to dip your big toe in the water and change the world on your own terms. Next week on Your Own Terms, we're going to have a special guest who is a specialist in angel investing. I was so excited to hear Marsha's story because I was always a little curious about what angel investing was. Turns out I really had a very unclear idea of it. And I had no idea that you can get started in angel investing to help these starter companies doing change-making work in the world to get started with an investment as small as $50 and learn how we can use our dollars, even small amounts to change the world on our own terms. In the meantime, may you be grounded in your beingness, guided in your doingness, generous in your connectedness and inspired in your reflectiveness so you can change the world on your own terms. I'm Patty Talbot. I'm always learning. And I know you are too.